Oral anticoagulation therapy. What should a clinician keep in mind? You are listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Focus on Pharmacy. I am Dr. Charles Turk, PharmD, your host. And with me is Dr. Ann Witkowski, PharmD, Director of the University of Washington Medical Center Anticoagulation Services in Seattle. Dr. Witkowski was a co-author on an article entitled Genetic Testing for Orphan Dosing Not Yet Ready for Prime Time, which appeared in the journal Pharmacotherapy. She's also a certified anticoagulation provider and a fellow of the American College of Clinical Pharmacy and also the American Society of Health System Pharmacists. Dr. Wojcicki, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. We're going to be discussing some clinical pearls associated with oral anticoagulation therapy, but I'd like to start by asking you if you could provide, say, a brief history of warfarin. How was it discovered and how has its use evolved through the present day? It's an interesting story and it's also a fascinating example of the entomology of drug names. In the early 1920s, a hemorrhagic disease in cattle first appeared in the western United States, western Canada, and it was traced to ingestion of spoiled sweet clover. In 1939, the hemorrhagic agent was isolated at the University of Wisconsin by Professor Carl Link, and his research was funded by the Wisconsin Alumni Research Foundation, or WARF. And eventually, this particular compound or a derivative of it was marketed as a rodenticide and later as a therapeutic agent and was given the name warfarin. Warfarin has been around for several decades. In fact, we're coming close to nearly a century of use or at least a century since its discovery. What are some of the current regulatory issues around anticoagulation with warfarin and other agents at the moment? Well, one of the major issues that has become more well-known over the last 10 years or so is the fact that antithrombotic agents are associated with a high degree of adverse drug events reported to the FDA, reported to other regulatory agencies, and events that have been associated with harm to patients. At the same time, venous thromboembolic disease has been recognized as the most common cause of preventable hospital death. And therefore, a number of regulatory agencies have come together to propose some new safety standards for antithrombotic therapy and some performance measures around the treatment and prevention of venous thromboembolic disease. Two programs that are in the launching stages at this moment are, first of all, the National Patient Safety Goals around antithrombotic therapy. These were developed by the Joint Commission for the Accreditation of Healthcare Organizations and are aimed at helping healthcare systems improve the safety of all antithrombotic drugs, not just warfarin, but also heparin, low molecular weight heparins, the direct thrombin inhibitors, and new agents that will become available over time. Over the year 2008, healthcare organizations have been charged with coming up with a variety of systems to improve their use of antithrombotic drugs, and those systems need to be in place by January of 2009. In 2009, the new performance measures for the prevention and treatment of thromboembolic disease will be released. That's a combined effort of the Joint Commission as well as the National Quality Forum. Those measures will also be used to accredit healthcare organizations. So accrediting bodies have taken an interest in this drug, and it's because it has a narrow therapeutic index. And perhaps for some of the uh, the younger clinician listeners, what is it about warfarin that makes it a narrow therapeutic index drug? What's its mechanism of action? 
Well, what warfarin does is to inhibit an enzyme called vitamin K epoxide reductase, which is involved in the hepatic recycling of vitamin K. Vitamin K is integral to the conversion of clotting factors from precursors into inactive clotting factors that can then go on to be activated by a variety of different mechanisms. And so it's kind of a backwards and roundabout mechanism of action. There also is the issues of the half-lives of the clotting factors that need to be taken into account. They disappear at rates that are comparable to their own elimination half-lives. As well, there are a whole variety of things that influence dosing requirement in individual patients from day to day as the drug is initiated and also long-term over time. Everything from vitamin K intake in the diet to alcohol use to drug interactions to underlying disease states and their progression or regression. There's also very little rhyme or reason to how an individual's dosing requirement can be estimated. Some people need very low doses in the neighborhood of a half or one milligram a day. Other people require 20 milligrams or more. And that is something that really can't be measured by anything other than starting the drug and checking the international normalized ratio or INR. There's a very fine line between what is enough drug to prevent clotting and what could be potentially too much drug and result in bleeding complications. And trying to maintain patients within that narrow therapeutic index is really an art and takes an awful lot of very cautious care. How is it that, say, a loading dose of warfarin might not necessarily produce the same kinds of effects you might expect to see with other agents like, say, aminoglycosides? Well, that really involves pharmacokinetics, not just of warfarin itself, but also of those clotting factors that are being inhibited. Warfarin is a racemic mixture of R and S enantiomers. The R enantiomer has a half-life in the neighborhood of 45 hours. The S enantiomer is somewhat shorter. And so the drug itself requires four and a half or five half-lives to reach steady state. So that's its own internal or inherent pharmacokinetics. At the same time, the clotting factors that are being inhibited have to be depleted according to their own elimination half-lives. And factor two, which is perhaps the most important of those, also known as prothrombin, has a half-life of 72 hours or longer. And so it takes quite a long period of time for that particular clotting factor to reach a new equilibrium or a new steady state. So things get quite complex from a pharmacokinetic perspective. This isn't something that you can just push and expect to see an effect. You won't necessarily see a huge difference between, say, giving it orally or intravenously. More drug doesn't necessarily mean faster onset of effect. Many patients and healthcare professionals are aware that warfarin therapy is associated with a higher risk of bleeding, but at what point do you feel it's necessary to reverse warfarin anticoagulation? Well, the first issue always is whether or not a patient is bleeding. In cases of life-threatening bleeding, warfarin needs to be reversed, and that is done with a combination of vitamin K and clotting factors delivered by a, a whole variety of different mechanisms. Danger occurs in situations where patients are not bleeding but have elevated INRs. If a vitamin K dose is given that is too high, it can cause a reversal of the anticoagulant properties of warfarin that can be quite prolonged for several weeks if, for example, a 10 milligram dose of vitamin K is used. And so it becomes very important to weigh out risk versus benefit. There's been a tendency more recently to use what's referred to as mini-dose vitamin K 
to reverse excessive anticoagulation in a case where no bleeding has yet occurred. Doses in the neighborhood of, let's say, two and a half milligrams of vitamin K given orally or a half to one milligram given intravenously. Those mini doses will rapidly reverse warfarin so that the INR goes either back to the therapeutic range in the case of over anticoagulation or closer to normal, an INR of one, in patients who are therapeutically anticoagulated but need reversal for an invasive procedure, for example. But those mini doses are not associated with excessive or prolonged under anticoagulation, which means that if there is a need for re anticoagulation rapidly to prevent stroke in the setting of atrial fibrillation or venous thromboembolism in patients with various risk factors, that oral anticoagulation can safely be resumed rapidly. For those of you who are just tuning in, you're listening to Focus on Pharmacy on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Charles Turk, and I'm speaking with Dr. Ann Witkowski from the University of Washington Medical Center. We've been discussing some of the clinical pearls associated with warfarin therapy and reversal of warfarin therapy with vitamin K. Because warfarin is metabolized by several different cytochrome P450 isoenzymes, it interacts with several medications. What are some of the interactions that you most commonly see clinicians overlook when ordering or prescribing warfarin? I'm so glad that you brought this up because warfarin drug interactions are probably the bane of the patient taking an oral anticoagulant and also of clinicians who are involved in management of antithrombotic therapy. There are probably more warfarin drug interactions than for any other commercially available drug. Hundreds and hundreds of compounds interfere with warfarin, not just prescription drugs, but also herbal medicinals, natural products, etc., And this can be a very, very serious problem if the interactions are not recognized and monitoring is not instituted that's appropriate and dosing adjustments aren't made. I have taught for many years a little mnemonic to help people remember the most significant warfarin drug interactions. And I use the term significant to describe interactions with commonly prescribed drugs and that are also of high magnitude. And that little mnemonic is RATS FAME, R standing for rifampin, A for amiodarone, T for thyroid medications, all of the thyroid hormones, S for sulfa, as in trimethoprim sulfa. So that's the RATS part of RATS FAME. (laughs) The FAME component includes fluconazole, alcohol, metronidazole, and erythromycin. Now, I have to say that despite years and years of knowledge of these very common drug interactions, publications that started back in the late 1960s and early 70s, teaching about this type of problem in all kinds of venues, we still see these drug interactions very commonly. And I think it behooves patients to recognize that any time a new drug is prescribed, an old drug is discontinued, or they are interested in using something that is available over the counter or in a natural product store that they speak with a pharmacist or a physician or a nurse who they have contact with to find out, does this drug interact and do I need to be careful with warfarin? Now, despite asking those questions, we still see, perhaps more than any other drug, trimethoprim sulfa, also known as Septra or Bactrim, prescribed very frequently in patients who are taking warfarin. It's an inexpensive and very common antibiotic used for all kinds of 
infectious processes and interferes very significantly with warfarin and requires dosing adjustments and increased frequency of monitoring. And so since clinician education (laughs) doesn't seem to have been very successful, perhaps the next best thing is to spend a lot of time talking with patients so that they understand that any time a new drug is prescribed, they need to turn back to whomever is responsible for their oral anticoagulant therapy to find out, is this safe, and can I use it at the same time? Dr. Ann Witkowski has been our guest in our discussion of the past and present of oral anticoagulation therapy, and thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you very much. I enjoyed our discussion, and I hope it was valuable to your listening audience. Absolutely. I'm Dr. Charles Turk, and you've been listening to Focus on Pharmacy on ReachMDXM 157, the channel for medical professionals. To comment or listen to our full library of podcasts, visit us at ReachMD.com. Register with the promo code RADIO and receive six months free streaming for your home or office. Thank you for listening.